Hey, thanks for joining us again. We are in the Gospel of Luke. This is a gospel that's written so that um, we will have confidence or certainty in what we've been taught. It's the purpose of Luke. Uh, Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus, and, and he's just trying to make sure that Theophilus has everything he needs to be able to fully be aware and understand and, and have certainty in what he has been taught. So it's a great uh, gospel for us. Uh, to be diving into and we're right now we're into Luke chapter 9 now in Luke chapter 9 there's a lot of things that take place but we're now towards the end of Luke chapter 9 and at the end of Luke chapter 9 we see Jesus transitioning from his ministry in Capernaum to fixing his eyes towards Jerusalem and so from this point forward everything is leading forward towards Jerusalem and, and there's some pretty significant things that take place now, our passage for today is chapter 9, verse 51 to 62, and we're going to find in there, um, in these 11 verses, a lot of material to cover, so we're just going to have to just dive right in. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 51 to 62, and uh, we're not going to read the whole section right now, I'm just going to read a short portion of it. Uh, the portion I'll read is, actually, you know what, I'm just going to read verse 51, so when you have it, Verse 51, here we go. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for our opportunities and privilege to be able to read your word and, and dive into it. And so, Lord God, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So this section of scripture that we're walking into here is one that is it's quite famous within Christian circles. It's the whole idea of, of diving into Jesus' teaching and what it means to count the cost to follow him. And it's a really interesting concept because very often it seems to me that we have this idea of Christianity. Uh, it's the notion of receiving from God. And it's not that it isn't True, uh, we certainly receive our salvation, we receive grace, forgiveness, and all these kinds of things. Um, but, but it seems to me that this idea or this notion of counting the cost to follow Jesus, meaning that it's going to cost us something, is not something that we regularly look at, or at least not internalize as much. Often when I talk to people, I hear the idea of what they want from God and not so much what they would it cost them to follow God, if that makes any sense? And, and so when we're looking at this, there is this idea, this notion of counting the cost, but it's, it's in a very unique context um, because the context of Jesus talking about counting the cost is him moving towards Jerusalem and about to pay a cost. So the background here in uh, in verse 51, it says here, a time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this idea of resolutely set out for Jerusalem is the notion that, that his commitment in the face of Jerusalem's danger helps us to understand the demands that he's going to place on his would-be followers later on in verses 57 to 62. Now, the language here is also incredibly um, important because it's a literary device. Uh, in order to help shift the action or the focus of what's going on in the passage. One of the things that's very common within the Bible is that they're going to use literary devices in order to be able to change our attention and the direction 
of where the narrative is taking us. And so in other words, we're moving from his ministry now to his sacrifice. Jerusalem is where Jesus will die, and Luke keeps reminding us of this. And we're, as we see moving forward, it's in chapter 13, 17, 18, 19. Um, and it's that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, which is a, a veiled way of saying that he's on his way to his death. This is part of the background. So when it says here that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, what it's saying here is that he is focused intently and determined to move on into his sacrifice. In verse 53, he says it again. It says, his face was set towards Jerusalem, reminding us again that Jesus' determination to do what he came to do, to obey the Father, to bring salvation to the world, is his primary focus. And so this determination of Jesus serves as the background for the challenges Again, that we see in verses 57 to 62. So his commitment is complete, it's reliable, and he challenges us to follow him and display full surrender to him. So this is verse 51. It sets the tone and it says there's a shift here, something different is taking place, and it's about Jesus' focus. And in very few verses later, what our focus should then also be. But before we get to verse 57, we, we got to deal with some of the other stuff that's taking place here. So verse 52 to 53, we find this opposition uh, to Jesus. It says, he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. So Jesus has his eyes on Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. But along the way, he needs to go through Samaria. Very often, Jews going to travel from Capernaum, like Galilee area, down over to Jerusalem would actually bypass Samaria very frequently, and they would walk down the Jordan and then over over to uh, Jerusalem. But in this case, we find Jesus walking through Samaria. And within the Roman Empire, we have these two related but divided groups. The Samaritans felt towards Israel what Israel felt towards the Samaritans. Both despised each other. As a matter of fact, um, the Samaritans believe in one God of Israel and claimed to be the true heirs of the promises. So even just right there, the suggestion that they are the true heirs is the indication that the Israelites are not the true heirs. And anytime you start challenging that kind of national identity, um, you're going to have conflict. The Samaritans rejected the history of Israel after Joshua. They changed the Ten Commandments to include worship at Mount Gerizim. And it's actually, um, you find that the Samaritans often heckled Galilean pilgrims who passed through Samaria on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem. And sometimes it even led to bloodshed. And so this, this was not, uh, by any means, a peaceful relationship. As a matter of fact, the... Uh, uh, one significant conflict occurred when the Jews sought to rebuild and expand the Jerusalem temple after the return from the Babylonian exile in 536 BC. The Samaritans felt excluded from the process. And so they actively opposed the reconstruction efforts. Now, I want you to understand that this is critical. Israel believed that the temple was the center of their society, but it was also the dwelling place of God. So if you have these people that are actively working against your ability to build this temple, 
the center of society and the dwelling place of God, there are no other ways that would insult the Jewish community at that same level. So they even went to complain to Persian rulers accusing the Jews of rebellious intent. In Luke 9, verse 54 to 56, you see this, um, this relationship being exposed even further from, from, let's say, the Jewish side. He said, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he said to his, sent his disciples to another village. Or he and his disciples went to another village. Now, it illustrates the contempt that Israel also then had for the Samaritans. So clearly viewing the Samaritans in the same manner that Elijah viewed the prophets of Baal in the contest on Mount Carmel, right? This is where like, these fireballs came down from heaven. Um, you see this contempt for each other. This is part of the background. Jesus is going to restore everything. It tells us that he resolutely is looking towards Jerusalem, and that's the contest. He's looking for his sacrifice for everyone, and here we immediately see this contempt that he ultimately is going to be able to heal. It carries on, right? And then, and then, so then we brings us then to verses 57 to 58, where we really do need to park for a while. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And so immediately what Jesus does is that he brings out some criteria um, to, to help us understand what our commitment to him needs to be. And, and the cost of following Jesus is what it's referred to as. And so first thing we find here in verses 57 to 58 um, is that there is a personal comfort cost. And this is something that our Western Hemisphere does not appreciate. I can go along with anything as long as you don't challenge my personal comfort, right? I mean, that's usually what causes people to rally hard against something, if there's a challenge to personal comfort. But in Luke's account, uh, what we find here is that this man is unnamed, who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you anywhere. In Matthew's account, taken from Matthew 18, 19, and 20, he's shown to actually be a teacher of the law. Now, this undamed disciple may have the right desire in his mind, but, and, and it's never wrong to follow Jesus wherever he goes. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus commands each of us to do in the Gospels. And, and so that's important. You know, like for example, John 10, Jesus calls us to follow him in salvation, right? Uh, 10, verse 27, 28, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Matthew 4, 19, Jesus calls us to follow him in service. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in Luke 9, 23, he calls us to follow him in sacrifice. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so the desire to follow Jesus is commendable, but it's also very costly. And so there's this personal comfort that he immediately begins to address. He immediately challenges the man where we all live, at the level of his comfort and possessions. Now, I want you to remember that this unnamed man was a teacher of the law. And it means that he was a mid-level bureaucrat who likely lived a fairly comfortable life. 
most of us work a lifetime to acquire a comfortable lifestyle. We say things like, well, I just, I, um, I, I want to have it better than I had it when I was a kid and that kind of stuff, right? Like we, we pursue a comfortable lifestyle. And how that's defined may vary somewhat, but for most of us, it involves a home, a job, and a certain level of possessions and, and disposable income. Now, Jesus tells us here that even the most basic needs must be sacrificed to follow him. Now, while he's not requiring all his followers to be homeless, he certainly sets the example for us, right? In other words, we're always called to choose obedience to him over our own possessions and comfort. That's the call. That's the cost. You want to be my disciple? Okay, you got to pick me over your possessions and your comfort. And so following Jesus is demanding. And one of the first things it'll demand is that we lay aside our possessions and commit our resources to him. And then he goes on in verses uh, 59 to 60. He says, another man, uh, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And so we move now from this personal comfort, the cost of comfort, to now the cost of a sense of security. Between these two unprepared disciples, talking about the the one that we will talk about next, is Jesus calling of a potential disciple to follow him. Right, so the first guy comes to him and says, hey, I'll follow you. And Jesus immediately responds by talking about the cost of comfort. This next guy, Jesus asks him, Jesus' call to follow him is recorded in at least 19 times, at least 19 times in the Gospels, and it's perhaps the most often repeated command of God. And so you have Jesus come to this man and say, hey, follow me. And now in this case, he's calling the disciple to follow him in the context of his demand of his followers to surrender their most basic comforts. And that is the same call that he issues today. The call of, to follow Jesus has always involved some measure of sacrifice. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a uh, famous pastor during the uh, World War II, he says, when Jesus calls you to come and follow, he's also calling you to come and die. And so you have this call to follow me in the passage. You have the notion of what that means. Like, I'm going to have to give up my comforts, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be one of those difficult things. There is a sense of security that I'm being challenged by. And that security is the idea that, that it's going to be uncomfortable, and, and it's not necessarily always going to feel safe, and, and it's just difficult. You see the concealed greed of this man in the second part of verse 59. On the surface, the request seems very normal and probably even necessary, so much so that Jesus' response sounds a little harsh, right? Like, let me first go and, and bury my father. But it's helpful to know the customs of the culture of the day. Now, based on Jesus' response, it's apparent that the young man's father wasn't dead and awaiting burial. Rather, the young man had employed a common saying of the day, which in essence says, let me wait until I receive my inheritance and then I'm going to follow you. That's actually what's being said here. So his dad wasn't dead. He wasn't waiting for burial. He says to Jesus, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my dad first. And in doing so, what he's saying is, let me wait for my inheritance so that I can come follow you and live more comfortably and live in a sense of security. But knowing this, 
casts a completely different light on the conversation, doesn't it? The young man was not asking Jesus' permission to bury his recently deceased dad. Instead, he's deferring his obedience to Jesus until it was convenient and economically feasible for him. And I wonder how often, like, you and I have been guilty of these kinds of things, right? As young people, we tell the Lord, once I finish school, I'll serve you. Or once I get married, I'll commit my life to your work. As young adults, we, we tell him, once my kids get older, I will go serve you. Or once I get settled in my career, I'll serve you. And then later in life, we offer these kinds of excuses. Lord, as soon as the kids graduate, or when I get some bills paid, or when I have more vacation time. The reality is, is that, like this young man who was talking about wanting to wait and bury his dad, we, we come up with our own excuses in terms of the timing of when to follow Jesus. The excuses are endless, and just like this would-be disciple, we're all, all we're doing is re- revealing our lack of obedience, really, is what it comes down to. But this guy specifically, he, was, he had to give up a sense of security. The inheritance would have made him feel secure to be able to walk forward. But the problem there is that he was... Jesus is asking him to exchange his dependency and his security in the inheritance with his dependency and security in Jesus. Like It's a trade-off. So the cost was security. And there's also the command here in verse 60, the command to forsake and follow. Jesus' response to the man, while on the surface seems startling, is exactly what he, and for that matter we, need to hear. This man was deferring obedience to Jesus based on the lack of faith and personal greed, you could say. He was trusting in his inheritance for security rather than Jesus. And Jesus calls him and us to reject our excuses and our false sense of security and proclaim the gospel. In stating that the man was to allow the dead to bury their own dead, Jesus was simply saying that that unsaved world could and would take care of these kind of matters. Jesus was not in any way degrading the practice of Christian burials. That's not what's happening here. But he was rather stating that we have a higher allegiance and calling as believers. The command to follow Jesus far exceeds any other obligation or allegiance that we have. And so there's, like, there's this cost of feeling secure. There's this cost of comfort. And then in verses 61 to 62, we see the cost of personal relationship. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to a plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. And so you, you have this notion from this, this gentleman that comes to Jesus of, of a conditional commitment. Like the previous would-be disciples, this man expressed his desire to follow Jesus, but he wanted to follow him in his own terms, in his own conditions. I'll follow you, but... Like, and then he starts setting whatever kind of ground rules there need to be. He was willing to follow Jesus, forsaking his comfort and security, if only Jesus would let him go and say goodbye. And while on the surface, again, this request seems reasonable, it reveals a deeper problem within the heart of this person. And like so many, this man's first love was his relationships with his family and friends, not Jesus. 
Jesus consistently tells us that we must not allow any other relationship to take priority over our love for him. And that is challenging. I mean, anyone here who is, is in close relationship with somebody, whether that be a family member or a friend or a spouse, like any of these things, these relationships are important to us. But he's constantly telling us not to allow these things to take priority over him. We're to love him first and foremost, as the scriptures state in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. I'll read it to you here. So Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're like this man when we consistently place our relationship with others above our relationship with God. Now remember, like in the Mark passage, we, we tend to look at like the heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. But the key word in it is actually the word all. Not most of. Not a significant portion of. All. And we do this in so many ways. Like we, we distract ourselves from the all part and we validate it in whatever way we, we deem we need to. We worry about what our friends and family might say when, we, when they find out that we're following and submitting to Jesus' will. Like, okay, yeah, but don't go crazy, right? Like that's kind of the language that, that people often use. Don't be a Jesus freak kind of thing. We seek the approval of people and even often unsafe people before we obey the clear commands of Jesus. We spend most of our time cultivating friendship with the world rather than cultivating a relationship with Jesus. And it's true. It really is. James warns us of this kind of behavior when he writes in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. And it's this idea of, of not allowing the world and the things of the world to be the priority, but rather we're to make Jesus the priority. In verse 62, we find uh, this idea of this uncompromising command. Jesus' final response to the would-be disciple would be strong but subtle. As he often did, Jesus exercises his teaching using the vernacular of day, like the common language of the day. And so he first he employs a common occupation to illustrate the nature of the disciples' commitment. Everyone in Jesus' audience on that day would have immediately understood the point of the illustration of a plowman, that if a plowman looked back, it would affect his ability to plow properly. In fact, looking back from the plow would inevitably cause him to plow in a crooked row and possibly damage the crops that he had planted. And so it's a suitable illustration of what happens when we focus on anything apart from Jesus. It's literally the idea of, of I've got to keep my gaze on Jesus. Now, when doing so, it's not that I don't have these other relationships. It's not that I don't have this idea of what it means to live in the world, but I'm, I've got a better lens and I've got a different focus. If I, if I have his hands on this plow and I'm looking backwards, well, I'm not seeing Jesus in the same way and inevitably I'm going to go off track. We plow a crooked row, and we damage the crop, and in the case of the disciple of Christ, the crop is the souls of men and the damage may carry eternal consequences. Second thing we see here is that Jesus emphasizes the consequences of disobedience. The original language here is, is actually quite helpful. 
Because the Greek word for the word fit is the word uh, euthetos. And it, it means to be useful, uh, fit for, like, you know, like you don't, you know, we have the saying nowadays that you don't have, you don't put a square peg in a round hole kind of idea, right? Like it's, that's not useful. That, that peg has no use to that round hole. Um, it's not suitable. Well, the same word is used in Luke chapter 14, verse 35, to describe salt that is worthless. In Luke 14, 35, it says, it is fit neither for soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever hear, has ears to hear, let them hear. And so the idea, the idea being that a person who looks back, who focuses on anything or anyone other than Jesus, renders himself useless in the kingdom because they're a divided person. This is the danger of not counting the cost of the commitment. And so Jesus challenges comfort. He challenges security. And he tells us not to be divided people, like to have a singular focus. And in all of these things, this is what it means to be a disciple. It is. So as a disciple, my comforts are going to get challenged. As, and and I've got to be willing to sacrifice that. As a disciple, my security is going to get challenged. I've got to be willing to sacrifice that. As a disciple, I need to have a singular focus and not be dual-minded. That's part of the cost. And so Jesus literally tells us that we're to count the cost before becoming one of his disciples. And that's not how we normally do things. The message that we often hear from people is, you know, if you accept Jesus, he's going to make your life better. You know what? I don't know anyone who truly experiences the idea that their life suddenly becomes better. It's not that there aren't great things that happen as a result of being, you know, a child of God. It's not that that relationships can't be redeemed or any of these kinds of things. But the reality is, is that more often than not, being a child of God is, is hard. There's costs, there's sacrifice, it's a life of service, it's a, it's a life of less of me and more of him. And, and when we pitch it as if all it is is that we get from God, which is, by the way, different than what the call actually is, right? Like, the call is a call of sacrifice. The call is to follow, which means if I'm following, like I'm... I'm reducing me and elevating him, right? Like he's my leader, he's my king, he's my Lord. And, and so this language of all, all Christianity is, is what we get from God, is actually a little backwards. It's a bit twisted. And so Jesus tells us to count the cost in following him. So here's, here's a couple of questions as we close. And take a few minutes to maybe think about these things. What comfort or possession do you have that you're unwilling to release to follow Jesus? What's that hurdle, right? What possession or comfort do you have that you're unwilling to get rid of in following Jesus? Or, or maybe not necessarily having to get rid of it, but surrendering it to Jesus so that it isn't above him. What are you depending on for your security? Who are you trusting to provide for your needs? Are you trusting in inheritance? Are you trusting in the lotto tickets? Are you trusting in investments and these things above trusting in Jesus? What are you trusting in? And what relationships are you placing before your obedience to Jesus? What relationships are you focusing on that you're placing before your obedience to Jesus? 
that's probably one of the hardest ones too, because because it, it just seems more personal because our hearts are connected to it in a different way. There's a challenge that comes with these things. In all of these areas, every single one of us has something that we need to bring into proper alignment with our Christian faith and what we're called into. And it's called counting the cost. Paying the cost. Now, I want you to understand this. Jesus' words about counting the cost and paying the cost are spoken as he's walking towards the cost of our salvation. Think about that for a second. Jesus is in the mindset of walking towards the cost of our salvation, and he's now telling us, hey, there's a cost to following me. What cost are you willing to pay? This isn't about works or anything else like that. This is actually a life of obedience. Are you willing to pay the cost of obedience in following Jesus? That's a hard one, but I can promise you that a life of obedience to Jesus, not necessarily easy, but I would say it's good. And I would say that it gives you the tools you need to be able to function in this world, with people, with self. It becomes that thing that's always in the forefront of your mind that better enables you to deal with everything else around you. It doesn't make everything else go away, and it doesn't necessarily make everything else easier, but it makes you stronger, and it makes you thinking differently, viewing things differently, so that you function differently. And it's all because you surrender things to Jesus. So my encouragement to you would be this. Whatever it is that's the hurdle to you, surrender it to Jesus. Make that commitment. Count that cost, pay that cost. Um, because it truly does change life. Again, it doesn't necessarily make it easier, but it makes you better at it. That's great. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I thank you, Lord, that as we look at your focusing on moving towards Jerusalem and focusing on your sacrifice for our sins and you then tell us that we need to count the cost and in terms of what it means to follow you then i pray jesus that you would help us to look at life and lord would you bring things up in our lives to cause us to think about what it is that's the hurdle in us coming to you and surrendering everything to you and lord would you help us to make that commitment to surrender to you because it is life with you lord that is worth living that is, it's a very different life, Lord, and I thank you for that. And I thank you, Lord, that even though you don't make everything easier, you are present with us in it. And so, Lord, I thank you. And to that end, I pray, Lord. Amen.